Welcome to episode 9 of More Than Just Maps. I'm your host, Ollie Powers. This podcast was created with the intent to help anyone in the GIS field get from where they are now to where they want to be, be that your first job, a career move, or just improving your GIS game overall. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Swindle from the city of Fort Worth, Texas. We talk about Michelle's non-traditional path to GIS and what it was like to go back to school after she thought she was finished with higher education. We also get to hear about what it's like to be a civilian GIS contractor in an active war zone, and how that environment comes with a whole host of unique challenges. And now for part one of my interview with Michelle Swindle. Welcome back to another episode of More Than Just Maps. On this month's episode, I have Michelle Swindle, the IT GIS manager from the city of Fort Worth. Hey, Michelle. Hey, how's it going? It's going. Uh, it's going well, surprisingly, <laughs> during this crazy time right now. A little bit, yeah. Um, so I want to get started uh, just a little bit with your background and where you went to school, what were your first jobs, and how you just got into GIS and what you did to get from that starting point to what you did to get to where you are now. So I started out going to TCU, um, Texas Christian University, uh, downtown, down in the heart of Fort Worth. Graduated from Midland Lee in West Texas. So I was like, yes, I'm going to live five hours away from my parents. It's going to be fantastic. All of this freedom didn't quite happen that way. My dad ended up getting transferred because he was a minister. So he was at University Christian Church, literally across the street from TCU. (laughs) So instead of living five hours away, I was more like 15 minutes away. So not what I'd intended. Switched my majors a number of times. And my junior year, I ended up getting into a major car accident. So I kind of muddled through it and ended up dropping out and went through a few different job hopping through that. Did insurance brokers agency for a while, ended up in accounting for a little bit. I was a nanny uh, for two kids for two years. And then a friend told me about Fort Worth ISD that they were hiring student records. So I was like, sure, why not? Started there. I had a boss who was really adamant about the injustice on how new schools were built in Fort Worth. It was like, there's too much bureaucracy. It needs to be resource oriented. It has to be based on what we need and demographics and what's where. So I was like, okay. So he found this software called Davis Demographic, did some research into it. I was like, this is really cool. It does school site selection based on demographics and of race and age and income and its distance to other elementary schools and everything else in the area. So he ran up to Five Pole, went through all of the hoops that you have to to purchase new software at Fort Worth ISD. And we were able to secure um, five training licenses. So five of us went down to San Antonio and I found out about Esri. I was like, what is this? The first day of training, it was me, Mike Naughton, my boss, and two other people from research and student record information. And so after the first day of training, me and Mike were like, this is amazing. I was like, how can I do this full time? How can I just immerse myself 
in whatever this GIS stuff is. So they started looking around and since they were bringing it, that software to uh, Fort Worth ISD, it wasn't necessarily going to be in my department. And to be able to start using the software, they wanted somebody who had a degree already and preferably somebody who had training in GIS. So I was like, okay, where can I find this? So that's when I found UNT's program. I went through the whole thing and applied and went up to UNT campus and met Dr. Opong, headed off with them and with him and then he took me over to see Bruce. And for those of you in DFW, you know that Bruce is kind of a founding father of GIS. And so I told him my whole spiel and I said, I want to graduate as soon as possible because I want to start using this software that I'm in love with and go back and work for Forward ISD. And he said, why? He said, you love it so much. Why would you want to rush through it? And based on your Esri training, yes, you could fast track this and skip the intro one and intro and um, ArcGIS intro and two, but is that something you really want to do? He said, if you love this so much, why not immerse yourself in it and find the other facets? figure out what else you can do with it aside from this one little niche of resource allocation and school site selection and kind of broaden your scope. I was like, oh, okay, sure. And so I enrolled full-time at UNT, so commuted from Fort Worth, which was a bear in itself. Um, but <laughs> yeah, UNT's a little bit away from Fort Worth. <laughs> yes, moved around in Fort Worth. So at one point, I was living south, way far south Fort Worth, and it was two hours, hour and a half to get up there. And even worse, going there and back in rush hour traffic. I was very lucky that I liked my courses because otherwise, I wouldn't have shown up. So UNT made a lot of friends, made a lot of connections, and GIS Day, my senior year, that spring, I met Terry Landrum. She was doing contracting for Jacobs at City of Hearst. So she said that they were looking for an intern. I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Sure, why not? So interviewed. She gave me her recommendation, went to City of Hearst and met with their, I'm forgetting what her actual title was, but she was essentially the director of public works at City of Hearst. So she, we hit it off and she was like, so Terry's contracting to get the stormwater drainage, the uh, assessment fee project spun up for us but we need somebody here often to do data entry and do general maps. And I was like, sure, I can do that. Really fell in love with Hearst. I liked it a lot. And I was just kind of a map monkey doing all the GIS things and getting fantastic experience. Anybody that's looking for like still in school or right out of school, I highly recommend doing a internship, even if it's just, part-time, 10, 20 hours a week 
at a municipality, whether it's a city or an agency like Tarrant County or Tarrant County 911 or um, Denco 911 or see the one in tech. North Texas Emergency Communication Center um, over in Carrollton. There's a lot of agencies, and if you're willing to do kind of boring map making, boring cardo adjusting, moving out edges and dropping address points, there's always experience for you. After I graduated and was still working at City of Hearst, I was kind of looking for what's next. And I had a friend that I went to UNT with, Anthony Shaheen, and he had moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, and was working for technographics at the time. And so basically, he worked at a map shop where they built the topographic line maps. So the big maps that you can see for USGS and NGA the 100 and 200 and, uh, 200s scale. And so it just shows terrain and contours and elevation. And he said that they were hiring. The only caveat was you had to have a security clearance. So I'd never really been to Colorado before. And I did a phone interview and everything seemed to go well had to fill out all the paperwork, get my fingerprints, and fill out all the paperwork for the security clearance. Everything seemed to go fine. They said that they were hiring. They only hire like two times a year. So they kind of do in batches. And I was just lucky enough to be at the time that they were hiring. So Labor Day, I bought a plane ticket, flew up there, saw the city in love with Colorado. Fort Collins is amazing. Sad thing was that Anthony already had plans, so he was going to his cousin's wedding in Houston. can't remember where the wedding was, but he was coming, so he was like, stay at my place, hang out with my cat, use my bike, meet my friends, we'll show you a good time. So I did all those things, fell in love with Colorado, signed the contract, and my mom cried multiple times, even just telling her that I was thinking of moving out of state. She was like, how can you leave me? I was like, well, I tried to leave you once and you followed me. So your only choice now is to follow me to Colorado. Oh my gosh. She, she didn't laugh. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. So moved to Colorado. So my mom is actually Canadian as well. She was born in Calgary. So on her side, I'm first-generation American. So filling out my paperwork for the security clearance, I got flagged for being first-generation American. So it was within my first week, um, someone from the DO, DOJ came in and we reviewed it and I was so nervous. I was like, I swear I answered everything correctly. What do you hear? What's wrong? Are you going to take me to jail? What did I do? Like, no, no, no. They just want to make sure that everything's accurate. Do you have all your paperwork? All right. Yes. Okay. You already sent in your mom's naturalization papers. Okay. Why did she come in? I was like, she was 16. Her parents moved from Canada to 
California. She didn't really have a choice. It was like, oh, okay. So it was very nerve wracking, but got my security clearance, which was really cool. Then after just at a year, Technographics, that location got bought out and they became CACI, C-A-C-I. And they downsized and brought some of the people from another shop into Fort Collins. Uh, so I started doing contracting work. I ended up moving down to Colorado Springs to live with my cousin and started working at Sanborn. That was just a wealth of knowledge. I learned about hydro flattening and how to generate contours and all of the fun things that you can do with raster data. I ended up working on like six or seven different projects there. Every project was something different. So, and so up until this kinda, point, the GIS that you were doing, was it just GIS in general? You weren't in any specific industry yet? Correct. At Sanborn, it was kind of specific. It was still partially um, generating maps and doing cardo adjusting a little bit, but depending on the contract that we were working on, there were specific deliverables that they were expecting. Okay. They were mostly raster and elevation hydro lidar data specific. While I was working at Sanborn, uh, my application was still out on governmentjobs.com, one of the big boards, because I had a security clearance. So somebody reached out and said, how would you like to travel, all expenses paid, for this fantastic contracting job in Afghanistan? What? <laughs> so I was completely taken aback. And a friend who I went to UNT with, Chad Smith, he was in the National Guard Reserves. He was already doing government stuff. And he was overseas already on a stunt. And he was like, I'm planning to come back here on the private side. Not a bad gig. Contractors, you typically get a pretty cushy setup. You get hazard pay for being in a war zone. Can usually get a day off. I'm like, I get a day off? He was like, yeah, it's not that bad. So I hemmed and hawed about it for too long and they already hired somebody else and didn't think much about it. Three months go by and they reach out again. Should have been a red flag. Should have been, oh, someone had this job for three months and they've already left. Why did they leave? Why am I not asking this question? It was <laughs> That's more an experience of, for you. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend back in Texas who she had a friend who was doing government contracting in Iraq, different industry. He was in automotive. So she was like, here, talk to Chris. He, if anybody, he's going to be able to tell you what it's actually like. Because he's a contractor, he's in an active war zone, he can give you the real experience. So I started talking to this guy, Chris, and he was like, you know, you're living in your cousin's house. Aside from your dog and your car, you don't have real possessions. Everything you have can be put in a storage shed. You have nothing else really tethering you to Colorado or any other place. Any time in your life, 
this is the time to go. If you're ever going to make this leap, it might as well be now. And I've always had the travel bug. I was like, I made the first leap to Colorado. What's another leap to Afghanistan? Well, that's like a pretty big leap (laughs) to a war zone. (laughs) People don't normally leap into war zones. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, people don't normally do that. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a leaper. They say, look before you leap. I usually just kind of sit on it for a minute. And once I make the decision, I'm all in. Um, I've had apartments that I've had like two pieces of furniture because I couldn't find the right one. And then as soon as I find it, I buy the entire set that day. And I'm like, no, no, I want it delivered now. I, I found exactly what I'm looking for. I want it. So, yeah. The side note to that story is the Chris that I was talking to ends up being my husband. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So went over to Afghanistan and came in in the middle of the contract. So I was only there for eight months. I was tasked to build a GIS database of all of the infrastructure within the wire. So what that means is digitize and collect all of the water, sewer, storm, fiber, telecom, and any other infrastructure information that they have inside the airbase. It was a huge undertaking developing this brand new from scratch database. So I was over in Bagram Air Force Base in Bagram, Afghanistan. It's about 30, 30 miles, uh, kilometers. I forget the conversion. Anyway, <laughs> due north of Kabul, Afghanistan. Because of the contracts that I was on and being a civilian and being a woman, I was not allowed off base. Well, that must have so, been fun. Yeah, so when I traveled over there, I did my training in Florida, which training and all of that was a week, 10 days. Then flew from Florida to Dubai, and from Dubai took a smaller plane directly on the base. And what was that like living on an air? I don't know that I know very many people who have (laughs) lived on an air base in an active war zone. I know this isn't GIS specific, but this is just interesting at this point. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was an experience that I'm not sure I'd ever do again, but I'm very glad I did. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So second day in country was the last day of Ramadan. And all through Ramadan, they'd been having firefights. And that night, missiles made it. Um, over the wall and actually hit one of the camps. So basically the base is spread out that you have the runway going through the middle and then there's Main Street going east and west and then another street that goes around the entire base. Those are your two primary paved roads. Okay. And then there's little pockets of camps which some of them um, they call connects basically think of a big shipping container and they're usually stacked two or three tall and have exterior stairs getting to them and then those rooms are divided up sometimes just with particle board sometimes just with curtains 
and sometimes depending on if you're enlisted or contractor or expat um so you're a non US citizen depends on where you were living. So most people were grouped by the contracts they were on. All the people who were Air Force that were with a specific battalion, I forget the Air Force equivalent, but a specific group were housed together. But as people rotated in and out, housing changed often. So some people were in the connexes, some people like me, they called B huts. So think of a Lincoln cabin, rectangle, peaked roof, and you walk in and there's a kind of man-made hallway and then there's, it's broken up into six different rooms. There's just particle board dividing and your room is probably a seven foot by three foot rectangle and I had a bed I had a pseudo dresser um there were the plastic clear plastic containers and I had my footlocker uh makeshift curtain rod and that was about it oh my gosh um yeah I thought the friend before said this was cushy (laughs) um so some of the connexes were a little cushier my husband when he was in Iraq he had his own basically like apartment because he had running water and a bathroom and a mini fridge in his place um plus AC that can be a plus there kind of had AC ish it was like a window unit type thing and I had uh inherited a oscillating fan forgotten that Afghanistan was in the high desert so mountains Hindu Kush mountains yes mm-hmm. very cold yes so in my head I was going from Colorado to desert yeah I was going from Colorado to basically a Colorado type uh, temperament so it was still Colorado temperatures during the day and then October hit, and it was snow. It was snow and ice, and that lasted from October through February. There were uh, it kind of shifted a little bit, and there were a few days of rain and slush, and other days when it kind of um, dried up, and it was nice weather, which I wouldn't have expected that I would have said that that <laughs> <laughs> it was nice weather in Afghanistan, but. Um, I have some pictures on Facebook of me in front of the Hindu Kush mountains, especially at sunset. It was just gorgeous. Uh, also got yelled at for being too close to the exterior fence to take those pictures, but it really was pretty. That's really um, cool. Yeah. Getting back on topic though. Um, so when you were there on base, were you going out in the field to get all these to maple infrastructures or were you doing this off of um, record drawings and construction drawings? Um, it was off of other people's data. So okay. the Air Force had GIS staff and they had shapefiles. Army had paper records. Contractors had digital CAD files and PDFs. Marines had a mix of both. So 
there was always a SME for the specific infrastructure I was looking for. And some people only had information for certain neighborhoods. So it was a lot of networking and negotiating. One of the guys that was um, on our contract, he got a bread maker from his wife. So she sent it over and she was like, it'll be nice. You'll have fresh baked bread. And we didn't think about getting the necessities. Like it came with a bread kit, but you also were supposed to have eggs and oil and other stuff to put in it. Well, mayo works very well for all that. I did a lot of bartering with that bread. It was, oh, hey, here's this. Can I have all of these files? Here's some baked bread. Can I have a ream of paper? So it was... Probably not a normal situation that most people are ever going to find themselves in. (laughs) No, but I got very good at haggling. So when I went to the bazaar uh, on base, I was very well versed of, oh, hey, that's a very gorgeous rug. I would like to take that home with me, and I only want to pay this much. I (laughs) negotiating skills increase. (laughs) That probably Um, comes in handy now that you're doing more high-level stuff. (laughs) That negotiating, yes. Um, Um, So what ended? um, You said, so did the contract end, or did you just have enough of of living on base? It was kind of a mix of both. There, the scuttlebutt, the gossip on base was that they were going to not renew that contract. And I had a friend that I, a sorority sister actually from TCU, um, her husband worked at City of Carrollton and he reached out and said, we're looking for a new GIS coordinator. Do you know of anybody? I was like, oh, me, me. He was <laughs> like, wait, are you back in town yet? I was like, I could be. And this was in January. So I did a Skype call with the applications manager. And it's kind of awkward because there were sirens and we had to do a shelter in place during the call, but my audio cut out. So he didn't hear any of that. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So I thought it was funny. And later when I talked to him in person, he thought it was funny as well. So I was scheduled to come home um, to Texas for R&R in February. I basically signed with Carrollton, packed up all my stuff, and had it all sent back. And after my two weeks R&R were up, I sent in my um, notice letter. The reason I did that is if you quit before your R&R, you don't get reimbursed. You don't get paid for it. So all of the travel money, I would have just been out, and I wouldn't have gotten paid for that. So it was one of the first times that I've ever just left a job and not given two weeks notice so it felt very sneaking out in the middle of the night very dubious but they didn't really care they're like all right we'll post it again and they didn't end up getting the contract renewed so by the time somebody would have gotten hired there wouldn't have been enough time for them to go over there anyway so started at Carrollton and I started as the GIS coordinator, so I was one on the applications team, so it was one out of six. So, and GIS coordinator can have a lot of different meanings. So, in this sense, what, were you more of in a management role, or was it still like a tech or analyst kind of role? 
it was tech analyst. Carrollton had a decentralized GIS. So each department had that needed GIS had a resource. Somebody who was either fully allocated, um, like engineering had five G uh, people who did GIS. Public Works only had one person who was fully dedicated to GIS. Economic Development had like a quarter of a person who did some GIS. Their GIS coordinator kind of filled in the rest of those holes. Did data entry, data, data analysis, database loading in all of the schema and domain updates. Did kind of coordination of the GIS editors and talked strategic things with them of, all right, do we want to buy cog imagery where people were wanting to buy new software? Are and you for interested? those who are not in Texas, COG is a council of Sorry. governments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was kind of getting my foot into the management leadership role. Uh, that was kind of the first transition from doing the tech stuff to doing the management leadership. And from that, I built a GIS team that we had a entry-level GIS um, that was what we called the GIS specialist. And then we had the upper-level GIS, which we called the GIS analyst. Couldn't call them a GIS tech because other departments had their own version of that and we had different criteria. Um, so everyone that was on my team. All through a contractor, correct? Correct. So back in mid-90s, Carrollton started outsourcing um, different city services. So they outsourced their waste management, uh, they've outsourced their fleet, and they outsourced their IT. So it initially was ACS that then became, you know, it was a private company that jumped and became another private company that then got bought by ACS, that then got bought by Xerox, that then everything that was ACS came and became Conduent, and then Conduent got bought by Avenue. And it was at that Conduit Avenue transition that I left the city. So obviously when you were at City with, of Hearst, that was for the city itself. So what was the biggest Correct. difference um, working as a city employee versus working as a contractor for a city? At Carrollton, it was for one healthcare because Carrollton has in-house healthcare. They have their own clinic set up that all city employees go to. And not having retirement in the form of the TRS system, the Texas retirement system, it, we had a 401k. So it was mostly but, the benefits, but the the day-to-day -day itself day -to -day, was the same. Yep. It was, Carrollton was great in, they treated all, everyone in IT as a city employee. Like when there were city functions and chili cook-offs, we did trail run, 5K stuff and all of the city hosted events, IT was always included. It was a great experience. It was kind of an extension of just being part of the city. The feeling of that did change as the contract changed. So as we became other people, there was always more levels of bureaucracy and hoops to jump through 
and finance gates that you had to go through. So procurement for things took longer because we couldn't just use the city's procurement. We had to go through corporate. So buying things was always a bear. Thinking about how long it takes to buy things with the city, it was even longer on that contract, which I didn't think anything could be longer than what (laughs) the city takes to buy things. But you add an extra two or three weeks, and that's what it was. I was like, ugh. So we had to start planning for paying our ESRI maintenance like four months out. I was like, all right, we're doing this money. We need this. All right, I filled out all this paperwork. What else do we have to do? Well, okay, we have to go to so and so. Okay, so it has to go to so and so. So they're always so just increase the levels of bureaucracy. Yeah. And so, how is it now that you're at City of Fort Worth? City of Fort Worth is also a little different because the GIS work, being in IT, I have basically my level GIS managers in the different departments. So there's over in TBW, which is their Transportation Public Works. There's a GIS manager. There's one in water and fire. So it's interesting having all of this additional GIS staff. Our focus is truly IT work. So it's maintaining automated jobs, building the website, updating Python scripts, and all of the truly kind of enterprise stuff, software maintenance and procuring software, deploying new solutions, doing Esri upgrades, all of that comes through our shop. Cool. So you're more mostly doing more admin, GIS administration than, than the actual GIS work? Um, administration and development. Okay. So it's not the data analysis side. No one on my team, asterisk, aside from one legacy person, <laughs> um, is really an SME on the data. All of the SMEs for the data sets and the data and the future classes themselves are in the department. I do have somebody on my team, Greg Webb, who has been with the city for officially, I think it's 15 years, but he did contracts before that, so it's closer to 20. And he's kind of gotten hopped around from department to department based on need and allocation. So he was over in development for a while and that kind of transitioned to planning. And then he ended up in IT and they wanted to send him back. So he's been doing plats and fire letters for two decades, basically. Um, he is a registered surveyor. So of all the people at the city, he is basically the SME for all of our base map and land data. That's a big role to fill. <laughs> <laughs> especially when yeah. you don't realize how much knowledge these people who have been around forever just have sitting in their head. They'll just know things that yeah. it, it's never been written down. They just know. Yeah. And thankfully there is, he basically calls it the Platt Bible, um, but there's two separate documents that talk about how to do his role. They're both written conceptually because I feel like that's kind of the biggest hurdle for anybody learning Platt coming into my shop is you expect it to be an IT role so to be more back-end development and database schema and translation stuff instead of, oh, what is an easement? Okay, 
when it says abandon right away, am I adding data? Am I removing data? Thinking about those planning type concepts are the bigger hurdle for people in my shop. So the both documents kind of talk about the methodology and the workflow of uh, reading the plat and understanding it, as well as this is the tool you use, this is how you do it, this is what you're looking for. So I was really lucky to come into following Robin Britton's footsteps of having that documentation. That's really cool to hear. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Join us again in a couple of weeks for part two, where we talk about the importance of subject matter experts, Michelle's work with emergency responders, and how you can go from no work to overloaded once your clients realize the power of what's possible with GIS.